0: The Bain Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, the mighty works of Andre Norton, considered by a mighty fine group of science fiction authors. Another question at hand, is your zombie apocalypse prep kit really all that? Oh, okay, it probably is. Ninjas and Psy Powers, Coming of Age Stories and the Heat Death of the Universe, plus Part 24 of the Complete Audiobook Serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour Podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have a very interesting roundtable discussion on the works of Andre Norton. Participating in the roundtable are David Drake, Eric Flint, Sharon Lee, Steve Miller, and Bain, editor emeritus, and Andre Norton know-it-all, Hank Davis. Andre Norton's magnificent body of work was a formative influence on a great many writers who are going strong now. When we told them about our roundtable, our author guest on this podcast gleefully volunteered to take part in it and each has a unique perspective on Norton and her work. Oh, and we asked Bain Consulting Editor David Afshararad to moderate. He did a great job. And, of course, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. But first, Bain Associate Editor Laura Haywood Corey joins me for the news. Laura, are you a prepper? What's that? You know, somebody who gets a go-bag ready for a major storm, the collapse of civilization into anarchy, the zombie apocalypse, you know, that sort of thing.
2: Ah, when the uh, stuff hits the fan. Uh, No, not really, are you?
1: I didn't used to be. In fact, I always thought it was kind of silly in my younger days, and then I had kids. And all of a sudden I had this instinctive, protective instinct kick in, and I couldn't help it. I got a kit together.
2: So what's in your kit, blue pencils and a copy of Moby Dick?
1: Not far off, actually. So the reason I'm bringing this up anyway is that we have a new September contest. You know what the September debut novels are going to be full of, right?
2: Uh, Let's see. We've got The Undead Hordes of Kangul by John F. Mertz and John Ringo's new book, Under a Graveyard Sky. I know the Ringo book is about science-based zombies.
1: Yep. It's the debut of a new Ringo series called Black Tide Rising. It's really good.
2: So, what's the September contest?
1: Well, uh, assume there actually might be a zombie apocalypse.
2: Well, isn't that already remotely possible, at least?
1: Yeah, I don't know, but assume that's the threat. What items do you need to be ready for it? What will be in your go-kit when the undead come knocking at your door?
2: So, sort of a top ten list, maybe?
1: Yes, exactly. What ten items would you absolutely want to prepare in order to survive a zombie apocalypse? We want you to list them and give the reason for listing them in a sentence or two. The winner will get a signed first edition copy of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo and five free ebooks. Now, doesn't that sound preppertastic?
2: It certainly does.
1: You can find all the details of the contest at bain.com right there on the front page. So start planning for the end times, Laura, and send us your list and everyone else. Uh, we'll judge them and publish the really You're not eligible for the contest, but maybe you should make a list anyway. You never know.
2: Chocolate's on the top of my list.
1: I see. We'll judge them and publish the really good ones on the website. Sounds like you already have a list.
2: <laughs> well, you can never have too much chocolate. Ah. So contest starts September 1st.
1: Yeah. But isn't Labor Day weekend a wonderful opportunity to sit down and get your prepper materials together?
2: Well, I'm going to DragonCon myself.
1: Yeah, but if I didn't have to go to WorldCon, I know what I'd be doing. Anyway, find out all the details at Bain.com starting September 1st. And now we present our Andre Norton Roundtable. Taking part in the discussion are David Drake, Eric Flint, Sharon Lee, Steve Miller... Hank Davis and moderator David F. Sharrad.
3: It's the Bain Free Radio Hour. I'm Bain Consulting Editor David F. Sharerad. Today, Bain Editor Emeritus Hank Davis and I are going to be talking with David Drake, Eric Flint, Sharon Lee, and Steve Miller about science fiction and fantasy writer extraordinaire Andre Norton. Andre Norton has been called the Grand Dame of Science Fiction by Time Magazine, Publishers Weekly, and the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, an organization that awarded her its highest honor, that of Grand Master, in 1983, making her the first woman to receive the honor. She has been inducted into the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame and was also the first woman to win the Gandalf Grand Master of Fantasy Award. The Andre Norton Award for Young Adult Science Fiction and Fantasy is named in her honor. Norton was born Alice Mary Norton in Cleveland, Ohio, in 1912. After graduating high school, she had planned on becoming a teacher, but abandoned those plans because of the Great Depression. Instead, she went to work for the Cleveland Library System. A brief stint as a special librarian in the cataloging department of the Library of Congress was followed by Norton's ownership of Mystery House, a bookstore in Mount Rainier, Maryland. When the bookstore folded, she returned to the Cleveland Library, where she worked until her retirement in 1950. After leaving the library, she worked as a reader for Martin Greenberg's Gnome Press until she quit in order to write professionally full-time in 1958. Norton legally changed her name to Andre Alice Norton in 1934, the year her first novel was released. She would go on to write 69 more novels and dozens of short stories across multiple series in the science fiction and fantasy genres. She died in Murfreesboro, Tennessee in 2005. Though some of Norton's works have sadly fallen out of print, Bane has been diligently reissuing her catalog in omnibus editions, usually containing two novels and maybe a novella or two as space permits. The latest Children of the Gates was released in May of this year and collects Here Abide Monsters and Yarth Burden. Ice and Shadow, another collection of two novels, is out just this month in mass market and Secrets of the Stars will be released next May. Here in the Bain offices to talk with me today about Andre Norton, her works, and her legacy is Bain editor emeritus Hank Davis, the man responsible for assembling and editing the most recent of Bain's Norton omnibuses. Hey, Hank. Hey, there. Joining us via the 19th century technological marvel known as the telephone is David Drake. David is the author most recently of The Road of Danger, and his short story collection, Night and Demons, out now in trade paperback, will be released in mass market later this year. Up next... David returns to the R&C series with The Sea Without a Shore, which will be out in hardcover in May 2014. David, thanks for joining us.
4: I'm really more comfortable with 19th century technology, as many of you know.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's harder to kill. (laughs) Good point. Uh, In addition, we're pleased to welcome Eric Flint. Eric is the author of dozens of novels, including the six books in the Belisarius series, which he co-authored with David Drake. He's the creator of the wildly popular alternate history series 1632. The newest installment in the series, 1636, The Devil's Opera, which he co-wrote with another David, David Carrico, will be out from Bain in October. Next year, we'll see the release of Eric's novel, Cauldron of Ghost*. That one was written with yet another David, the great David Weber. Eric, thanks for collaborating with another David, namely me, on this roundtable discussion.
5: Well, you're welcome.
3: <laughs> and last but certainly not least, we have Sharon Lee and Steve Miller on the line. Sharon and Steve are the creators of the Leaden Universe novels. Uh, Leading Constellation Volume 1, a collection of Leading Universe short stories, is out now from Bain, And uh, there's another uh, volume coming up, uh, and also a new novel in this series, Trade Secrets, which will be released in November. Sharon, Steve, thanks for joining us.
6: Thank you for having us. We're glad to be here.
3: All right. I mentioned at the very beginning of the introduction, oh, five, ten, thirty 30 minutes ago, something like that, that CEFWA, the uh, Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, named an award in Norton's honor, um, the Andre Norton Award for Young Adult Science Fiction and Fantasy Uh, When science fiction fans talk about trailblazers in the young adult field, I think we mostly think of the Heinlein Juveniles. But Cephwin named the Young Adult Award not after Heinlein, but Norton, which I think speaks directly to her importance in the field. Uh, Many, if not most, of her novels and stories were written with younger readers in mind, uh, yet they also appealed equally to adult audiences. In a lot of ways, Norton's ability to simultaneously appeal to teenagers and adults reminds me of another female writer of fantasy who is currently using a male name, J.K. Rowling, who incidentally received the Norton Award in 2008. I guess the question, uh, which I'll eventually someday get around to asking, is uh, when did you all first fall in love with Norton's writing, and what is about her work that gives it such ageless appeal? Uh, David Drake, uh, maybe we'll start with you. You You tell a wonderful story about your discovery of Norton uh, as a 14-year-old into the introduction to one of your stories in, a collect- in your collection, Night and Demons. Uh, maybe you could start us off with that, um, for those who haven't read the book, few in number though they may be.
4: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, when I was in junior high school, as it was called in eighth grade, uh, we were allowed to join the Teenage Book Club which was basically a a buying group for uh, schools. And there was usually one SF book every monthly offering. Uh, This is, we're talking 1959. And um, the first month that I was able to order, I ordered the book that was up for that month which was The Stars Are Ours by Andre Norton, which was, a, it was actually a special edition. I now know that they did a special edition for the Teenage Book Club that dropped the other half of what had been an Ace double, but it still had the ads. And I read the book, and I loved the book, and I began ordering other Andre Norton stuff directly from Ace. And she's just a wonderful adventure writer. And um, her prose is not what she's best known for, but I was 14. And it just, doggone, she's a wonderful writer. And it was a delight to, to be able to say that. To have her ask me for a story uh, was just utterly thrilling.
3: Well, um, Eric, uh, Sharon, Steve, how about you all? Did you come to Norton later, or was this a, a teenage love affair that you had with her work?
6: Well, um, I had been, a, as a, a teenager, um, a member of the Kearney Library in Baltimore County, Maryland. And the Kearney Library was set up in, temporarily um, in an old allied moving van warehouse. So they had basically interleaved all of their books. So the mystery, the mysteries were sort of against the science fiction, but you, you, you kind of there, there, was this kind of gray area. Um, and I came, I was trying to read the library, and I'd started with the mysteries, and I was working my way around, and I hit science fiction, and I got a Heinlein book, and I hated it. Um, and the next time around, I got a Norton book, and I loved it. And I went, oh, more of these. At which point, the library moved. And when they moved into their new building, they separated the YA books out from the adult books. And I didn't find Andre Norton again until I was facing around waiting for a friend in the library when I was out on my own, 22, I guess, and came across Andre Norton. And I went, there's a whole section of them, and proceeded to read them all.
3: So, they so I came
6: to them um, much later than many people do. And I was also, as David, struck by the prose. I just loved the way she, she wrote. She didn't write like anybody else. Oh, and my...
5: First uh,
7: the first book? The first yeah. book must have been... The first book must have been The Zero Stone. I was in the library in my... I guess it must have been my junior high school, which would have been... Uh, Sometime uh, just before John Kennedy got killed, uh, and within within a day or two, because I had got joined the library as an assistant as well, and they sent me down there, and I started I was doing shelving and came across three Norton books at the same time to be put away, and at the end of that session they sent me there for a half hour or an hour at a time. At the end of that session, I was still standing there reading uh, one of them. And um, they almost stopped me from from coming back um, but and I can't be sure which of the ones it was at this point because uh, i I ended up reading three or four of them in in the same evening uh, when i took them when I took them out, <laughs> so I don't want to tell you what, what which one in particular. I do remember that the defiant agents I discovered on a newsstand uh, and it was one of the well i Probably um, caused my mother much much pain and heartache that night because I found it on the newsstand and I was out of money, and demanded that she buy that for me um, if I was going to carry the groceries to the car. So I learned several lessons in short, in <laughs> short order. <laughs> All
3: right, thanks, Steve. Um, Eric, did you have a, a Andre Norton uh, first time experience that you wanted to share?
5: Yeah, I was uh, I was about uh, twelve or thirteen. Um, and I don't remember where I ran across it, but, um, I'm thinking I got it out of a uh, high school library, but I don't think I would actually started school yet. so I'm not sure. I may have, I don't really know where I got it, but the book I read was Star Rangers. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I, that same, uh, right around that same period of time, um, I read Heinlein's, um, my mother bought me, um, 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 Citizen of the Galaxy and I read The Star Guard and I read uh, uh, Tom Godwin's it was (laughs) called Space Prison the version I read Uh, it was originally issued as The Survivors which is the title I kept when I reissued it about 40 years later Um, so I read those three novels roughly the same time those are the three books that got me into science fiction and the Norton I read was uh, uh, Star Rangers and I really liked it so I I started looking for stuff, and I, shortly thereafter, I remember I read Starman's Sun, 2250 A.D., and Stargard mm-hmm. and... David, I know the stars are ours, because I read it, but remind me what happened, uh, what's...
4: Uh, basically, uh, there's d- been a nuclear war, Earth is ruined, uh, scientists are being hunted down as the people who are responsible for nuclear weapons, And a group of scientists build a generation ship. Well, actually, a a cold ship uh, on their own and escape as the Mobs are coming from them. And uh, I know I I
5: read it, but I don't remember it. I also read Beastmaster. A bunch of them. Now they're all science fiction. I did not read any of Norton's fantasy. She started writing them later, as I recall.
4: And I think I tried one. Oh, what? that's a fair question, but they are different. I mean, but yeah, that what the see? fantasies in a science fiction.
3: Yeah, actually, I was that was the next. So yeah, that was the next question I was but gonna. I don't
4: know. I mean, to
5: me, the minute you put magic in it, it makes. I mean, you know, as a teenager, it was a real simple division for me. You know, as long as somebody claimed <laughs> that what was happening was science, I figured fine. We'll call it science fiction. If somebody says magic, even if they have a science fiction premise for it, which they're she did for which world. To me, it was still fantasy. Uh, same way Fred Saberhagen did the Empire of the East trilogy. He did have a science fiction basis for it, which you'll find out at the end of the third book, but, you know, to me, the whole thing read like fantasy. Uh, well, the uh, reason I didn't particularly like Witch World wasn't because it was fantasy. I just didn't particularly like
4: the story, that's all.
5: Um, I don't even
4: remember why. Anne McCaffrey got really peeved at people calling her a fantasist because she started writing right. fantasy quite late. Yes, and, because, you know, because the dragon books are science fiction. Right, and um, were published by John W. Campbell in Astounding, for, well, actually the first one was analog, but uh, it, it really peeved her, but frankly, they had the feel of fantasy, just as Andre's stuff really, it's, it's neutral, but, you know, there's certainly nothing about it that would turn off a fantasy reader. Um I was both, but I didn't read her fantasy cuz I was actually just a little older.
3: Yeah, well, we were uh Hank and I were talking about um Norton's and some of her fantasy writing and uh I Hank had made the an interesting uh assertion to me that uh he kind of thinks I mean, everyone gives credit to Tolkien for sort of ushering in fantasy. The, the fantasy boom that's still going on today, and obviously rightly so. But Hank, uh, you're saying that you thought Norton maybe deserved co credit for that a little bit. Did you want to, could you talk about that a little
8: bit? Yeah, it's, it's certainly possible. I can't be authoritative about it without getting secret sales figures from Ace Books. But, <laughs> but when she did Witch World in the <laughs> summer of 1963, uh, it was very unusual for Ace to publish a fantasy novel which I considered it to be, although she uses a science fiction rationale for getting the guy into a parallel world where magic happens to work. And where also there are these alien invaders from the third parallel world who are very high tech. They're, they're like Wells' Martians, not the way they look, but the way they're invading. And uh, and I think the book, uh, I, I can't really be certain after uh, oh, uh, almost, well, 50 years, years, actually. After 50 years, it can be certain. But I think the words science fiction were on the book. And, of course, later on, when Ace did its unauthorized editions of The Lord of the Rings in three volumes, of course, uh, they also had science fiction on the cover rather than fantasy. So, But uh, uh, apparently that sold well enough that she wrote a sequel and sold it to Ace also, uh, Web of the Witch World. And about the same time, I think, that uh, the Tolkien came out from Ace, uh, uh, out came a third witch world novel, uh, You're the Unicorn. So I, I think she may have been an advance guard for fantasy the same way Tolkien was and probably convinced Ace books it would sell. And then, of course, uh, Ballantyne much later, because they made a small fortune with the authorized editions of Tolkien, started the... Uh, adult fantasy series edited by Lynn Carter, but that, that's really another story. But I think I, I think those uh, books may have convinced a lot of publishers there was a market for fantasy, when, when all very few book publishers were doing science fiction in the first place, and almost none of them were doing fantasy. And if it did come out as if I can, oh sure, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm pretty much finished. <laughs> a, no,
6: no, with a data point. That's all. I'm, I'm holding in my hands the doll. Um, edition of Spell of the Witch World, which was published in 1972, uh-huh. and it says on the cover, "A science fantasy saga comparable only to the work of
3: Tolkien." There you go. Yeah. yeah.
8: Hmm. Well done. And yeah. I, he uses those words, science fantasy, point? which had pretty much got out of fashion by the 60s, too.
7: <clears throat> yeah, I, I think there's another point there when you're talking about uh, preparing, uh, preparing, and, and being being essential is that. Tolkien was not a children's book initially. It wasn't presented That It wasn't even presented for young adults. It was something that the college kids were reading and the, the older, uh, more advanced high school children. Uh, what happened was that a lot of those folks came through having a background with Andre Norton and a comfort with fantasy and science fiction because uh, she had an in with librarians. And librarians loved to make sure her books were in libraries. And uh, I think that that's one of the reasons that she had managed to penetrate so many junior high school libraries. And those folks came out going, we need more, we need more. And zombie-eyed Saul Tolkien and went, (laughs) yes. I think she had some preparation there.
3: Um, Well, we've kind of talked about this, but um, I guess I just wanted to talk about, have you, well, have you talk about rather... Um, Sort of the, you know, we've kind of made a few jokes about it. How could you tell the difference between her science fiction and and her fantasy writing? And I guess that's a question I have is sort of what are some of those um, hallmarks of her style and how does she employ those genres differently, if at all, or employ um, different uh, techniques or aspects of the genres that she blends together that kind of make it uniquely an Andre Norton experience?
6: That the strange was strange um, as a homework assignment for this roundtable. Um, I read Ice Crown and also Brother of Shadows. And Brother of Shadows starts on a fantasy world. It starts on a world um, where there's an Assassin's Guild and there's a a low-tech kind of society with lords and um, territorial disputes, and they employ assassins to help settle the naughtier matters, as one might. Um, But they've been discovered by a star-roving civilization, so there's a little star rover city sitting down there at the end of the valley, where where the locals really don't go. Um, So you have the mix of science fiction and fantasy, always, and you have this... um, assassin walking into the city where he's not supposed to go and meeting up with a non-human alien who is just as weird to him as the fantasy world is to the non-human alien. And they're both treated as weird and strange, and they're both, and this is underlying in Norton, I think, both characters are assuming that they can understand the other character. That there can be a basis for for a common
7: for common cause. I, I think that uh, she doesn't doesn't differentiate or didn't differentiate uh, as much as uh, purists want differentiation, and uh, I, I had to jump out of an argument this morning on the uh, interwebs. Where where somebody was falling on their sword, or, the, or rather on their ray gun, because no no fantasy should pass his eyes, um, and I, I think that it to her what what this was about was story. Because while we're mentioning her fantasy and her science fiction, I, I don't know how many dozens of books she wrote that weren't fantasy or science fiction, but there were there were more than a few. I'm sitting here with a box of uh, twenty eight or thirty books that are mostly. There's Scarface right there. Uh, Scarface is in here and there, uh, she wrote she wrote other things but she had an understanding I think of of uh, story first. And I, in some ways I believe that her she didn't differentiate to herself and she, that she had this uh, span where where she probably put Scarface in with this the same place in, in her mind where the bodies were and the yeah. bodies were across the fantasy and the science fiction. They were the bad guys for any number of books.
6: Yeah. look well, at books like
7: Beastmaster,
6: which is, okay, you have telepathic, you have this guy traveling around, and he's obviously um, a science fiction guy, but he has a telepathic horse. Is that science fiction or fantasy?
5: You know, the difference between science fiction and fantasy, in my opinion, because basically it's all kind of in the eye of the beholder. I can make a very good case that any faster and light travel science fiction is fantasy. I mean, you know, it's it's I've never cared personally. I think it's a silly thing to get worried about. But at least in that in those days, uh ESP was considered science fiction. It just was. Whether it should but be or a not. Story, uh, yeah, a story,
4: yeah, a story like The Last Planet, which is, you know, heavily into sci. Um, right. ESP, yeah. Yeah. Uh you could replace every single bit of that with magic and have exactly the same story. And I think, if, you know, she might well have done that. Uh, and it didn't matter, as, as Eric said, it didn't matter to her. She mm-hmm. was telling stories.
8: Yeah, some of the early... Uh, that's the wonder. Yeah, some of the early Nortons from the 50s have something that's almost like magic. Like in uh, The Time Traders, The there are these aliens from the distant past that the people run into when they're back in time and they could call you uh, one, one guy resisted by putting his head in the fire if I remember right they could call you it's like magic but it's uh, it's not it's it's an aliens doing it so maybe it isn't magic and then also one of the uh, uh, Quest Cross Time one of the books from the 60's uh, they're marooned in a parallel world it's the book, book is all about parallel worlds and the some they do what really amounts to a magic spell to get out of that parallel world by by concentrating and meditating and stuff. So very very often her what would be classified as science fiction as that something that's uh, awfully like fantasy. Oh, by 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 the way, since Scarface was mentioned, uh, for readers who haven't seen that, that is a pi- very early Norton novel about pirates. are
3: so not the, the De Palma... Was not used as the basis no. for the De Palma film, no, right? It's not, no, it's not
8: about Capone, or really, anybody.
3: <laughs> so uh, one thing that Sharon mentioned um, is that uh, Norton would often kind of juxtapose a, uh, a space-faring advanced civilization with what we would think of as a more uh, primitive or tribal um, group in her fiction. Um, and she oft- often would portray them as... Uh, equal in some ways, Um, you know, this is before the new wave came out, uh, when everyone got real excited about anthropology and social sciences, and Norton was doing it, uh, you know, years before that, um, you know, her her world building feels very organic and real and natural, um, in preparing for this roundtable, I read an essay, and I apologize to the writer, I can't forget, uh, who wrote it, but, um, she said Norton advised her when she was a young writer to read history and anthropology extensively in order to give uh, the world she created a believable feel, and that's something Norton does really well, and that's something that all of you do very well. Um, and just wondering, was that kind of emphasis on historical and anthropological uh, research is kind of a dirty word, but, you know, um, that background, something you picked up from Norton to some extent, and incorporating that into your world-building of your your stories? Uh-huh. No, <laughs>
7: I'd say no because I'd say my my grandmother drowned me in books, and it, if it was it didn't matter to her if it was history, philosophy, um, or whatever, and she drowned me in books, and and I was expected to read them, and boy, I, I did, and so I had that background come in from from another angle. We were I was already there. It made reading Andre Norton so much more pleasant to me. I had an idea of what the siege perilous was when somebody had the the. Mistakenly sat down in that darn chair. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> what a what a mistake!
6: Um, and what I learned, I didn't learn to do the research, but I learned that the world had to feel solid. Um, I don't know that I could learn from reading her how it was done. Mm-hmm. Um, but the seamlessness that David talked about, and the the solid, the solid underpinning of yes, this culture works because. Um, and I can show you why it works because if you really want me to. Um,
4: so I did learn that feel from her. I think it made her more attractive to those of us who were into doing that sort of research to, to understanding systems because she has systems. She, she doesn't have, oh, this is, let's have people oh, all living on the tops of trees and what the hell they're eating is you know beyond me because you are not eating the trees she, she didn't do that sort of thing she had economies uh right. it, it isn't what she spent her time on but you knew that no people were getting food here and it was in a reasonable fashion and that put her ahead of an awful lot of writers of the time
7: uh, and i think she had a real they, yeah and i think she had a real understanding of of systems when you look at uh How badly so often bureaucracy was portrayed.
3: (laughs) She'd obviously (laughs) suffered from bureaucracy because so many of her
7: her her people have got to deal with the bureaucracy, and it's part of what gave the Dipple its strength. Was that there were people who were who were trapped in that bureaucracy, in effect, in its own. uh, So it's a um, but but she brought that part of system to to students. I, you know, I was in junior high school when I started this. I wasn't used to thinking in, in, in these terms, but it's the same as the historical stuff. I wasn't used to thinking of them as a system, as you put it. But she did make it all make sense.
3: Let's take a minute here to talk about um, some of the, maybe like a recurring theme in her work, which is that she often writes about outsiders who are uh, thrust into situations that are bigger than they are, characters often go through some sort of rite of passage in order to realize their full potential. I think this helps explain her appeal to younger readers, especially kids who are maybe a bit bookish. Uh, maybe they feel like outsiders themselves. Certainly, I think a lot of us science fiction fans at that age felt that way, uh, maybe. Um, was that something that all of, any of you kind of identified with when you were reading her work as, you know, younger readers? Hmm.
4: That's, that's really a hard one. I... I
7: um... I was unable to communicate with people for several years as a child, Uh, and I say that uh, because they actually sewed my mouth shut um, after I had a very bad uh, accident where I tried to take out a light, uh, a uh, telephone pole uh, with a sled, and I was leading with my face. And they rebuilt my mouth, and they periodically just sewed my mouth shut for a while. For a while, the only person who could understand me was my brother, uh, which meant that I read I read everything my grandmother gave me i read uh, I, I read every book in the house. I read the encyclopedia. so no, i I did not belong in the ordinary, in the ordinary um, group of children out on the playground a lot of times because i I wasn't in their world in many ways. so coming across Andre Norton, sure, I could
4: boy, I just fell right in i I was certainly an outsider, <laughs> and the more I looked back on it, the more of an outsider I realized I was but hell I didn't know Uh, I I thought everybody was like me of God what a world that would have been (laughs) the the thing that got me was the uh, was just the adventure I mean it wasn't the fact she was writing about outsiders per se Um, and it's not just individuals you know the the whole group in Stargard—they uh, right. are low tech. I mean, they—they're second class, third class, fourth class. They're—they're they're kids, so far as the the high tech people running things are. And it was that sort of field, not as an individual, but even as a society, that uh, gosh, there's a lot that you know we can't touch. We don't know anything about. There's these rules and. Other people are breaking the rules. And we can't do anything about it because
6: we're just kids. Yes. And she gets that beautifully. I think the one that hit me most with the outsider theme, I, like David was reading for the adventure, okay, this is really cool, um, was Starman's son. Because he's so out of place and he's so tangibly out of place with where he is. Um, and at that point I, I sort of went, gee, I know what that feels like um because you know a six foot girl and twelve years old the whole the whole business um plus red red more read more than tall oh no, being six foot tall and twelve is just awful if you're a girl um, Being um, but
4: is not great for a boy." <laughs>
6: Uh, But that was the first time I I recognized in a fictional
3: character that feeling of, boy, I really don't fit anywhere. Um, Okay, well, so uh, Sharon aside, we're a bunch of guys here, but uh, we can't really have a discussion of Andre Norton without talking about how important she was uh, as a trailblazer for women in the genre. She was the first woman to win the Gandalf Award. Uh, She's the first female Sephwag Grandmaster um, Which World, her series has kind of been cited as a way in, I know, by a lot of uh, women writers and fans in the genre. Some of you knew Norton. You know, she was writing at a time, and I'm trying to think, Lee Brackett, C.L. Moore. There's not a lot of women, you know, of her stature at the time uh, writing. Was this, you know, was she, uh, did she think of herself um, as sort of purposefully paving the way for women, if you will, or is this just a happy side effect of she was a great writer and... Uh, it showed that maybe women could write this stuff.
6: Well, to tell you the truth, I'm going to disappoint you as your um, woman on the panel. Uh, okay. Because when I was, at the time, I was reading Andre Norton. I didn't know if she was a male or a man or a woman, and I didn't care.
3: Yeah, well, you know, this was Tank was telling me this. Uh, some people, I guess, didn't realize, and then, but some others, I guess, they said it was kind of an open secret. Maybe it wasn't uh,
8: Sharon, Sharon, You were reading right? the hardcovers, right, at the library? But I was reading the Ace paperbacks. The
6: hardcovers
8: at the library. Yeah, and I assume the hardcovers, uh, I don't know, were, did you have the kind of library where they left the p- dust jackets on or the kind where they threw them away? No, they threw them away oh. and they put the little
6: rocket on the spine.
8: Okay, so there was <laughs> nothing to read. However, I was I was reading Andre Norton. My, my school library didn't have any Andre Norton. I was reading Audrey Norton through Ace paperbacks, and several of those had little notices in the front by Della Wahab about the author, in which he mentioned she was a woman, and also said her actual name was uh, Alice Mary Norton.
4: I, I okay. certainly knew she was a woman, but yeah, so it, it, it it just flat didn't matter. It didn't occur to me that was a problem.
8: Yeah, there were a few problems. I remember. I, I I remember have a different
5: take on this. I knew she was a woman. Uh, I don't know why or how, but I knew. But see, I, there have been plenty of female authors. I mean, you know, going back for a hundred years, there you know, it's not that there was a shortage of female authors. The thing that's most striking to me, when I ran into her, which was in the 60s, and especially a little earlier, that, was that it wasn't so much who the authors were, is that science fiction was so, I mean, it's kind of amazing. I put, I, I, I edited eight volumes of Chris Randall's books, um, and Chris Ranville is not a misogynist, I knew him. But of those, half of those books have no women in them. I mean, there are literally no female characters. How can you pull it, that off? No, never mind. <laughs> no, no. It, but Andrea Norton wrote books with no female characters. She did. She yeah, also wrote books with no female characters. I mean, it was it was the standard of science fiction at the time. And the fact that well, she was a female yeah. author, I didn't really think about it one way or the other, to be honest with you. Um, and yet she wrote so many powerful women. I, I knew there were lots women. of female, huh? She wrote so I'm many, many powerful women. Uh, not the books I read. Not the earlier ones that I read. Starman's Son has almost no women in it, if it has any. There are a few that come in toward the end of Star Ranger's Last Planet. There are no women in Stargard. Um, you know, the books I read, uh, Beastmaster, I don't recall there being any women, although I may be wrong about that. Uh, I think you're thinking of later books she wrote in the 70s, where right. she adapted as, as the climate changed. But I don't think of her so much as a forerunner or, or, you know, in terms of women, just because she was a woman. The fact that there were female authors, I mean, I knew plenty of female authors in major literature, you know. Um so the, I didn't really think much about that one way or the other. But the thing that, that struck me looking back on it was the stories. Her stories that she wrote, the ones I ran into in the early 60s, were not much different, if any, than in, in the sense of female gender than, than, most other authors I've
7: run across. Right. Yeah, I think that the, you know, from, from the standpoint of somebody who was wandering through the school library reading books, a lot of the mysteries, uh, a lot of the generic boys' books were by men, but some of them were by women. And the books that we were supposed to read, we, we, we had from from either side. So it, it certainly wasn't an issue from, from that standpoint at, at any point. Um, I never... It didn't bother me. It didn't didn't affect me one way or another. And the problem, the question is, at which point? At what point did women coming along have that be important to them? And it might have been that readers in the who were starting off in the eighties or nineties uh, might have might have noticed that later because it, it had become a different kind of cultural issue.
6: Well, yeah. And then you're talking about somebody who has a, a sixty-eight year career. Is that what we're talking about here? Um, people were uh, going to come okay. in at all, all different all different um, points in their career. <laughs> oh,
4: yeah, sure. I told my first story in 1966. I'm feeling a little pressed on that. <laughs> 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 well, what, what was her first book? Was in 34? 38, 34, uh, 38,
3: like yeah, 34? I think it, it was 34, right.
7: and then 38.
4: Yeah, well, Karen the Eternal, as I recall, wasn't mm-hmm. actually completed until
8: the '60s, wasn't it? Uh, actually, the '70s. But it was, no, she it had was some, a doll book.
4: She had some publications
7: in the in the '30s. I think yeah. we had come. Across. Yeah, thirty-four
8: yeah, yeah. was the first. uh of Command uh, one. in nineteen
7: thirty-two or something.
8: Yeah, but I, I don't think she did any science fiction until the '50s. Or no, I think it was late 40s. '40s. Yeah.
3: All right, well, uh, I guess finally, Eric, I uh, was going to want to end with you. Uh, you co-wrote a book with David Weber called Crown of Slaves, and you dedicated it, uh, the two of you did, to Andre Norton. I'm just going to read the dedication, yeah. if you don't mind. He wrote, to Andre Norton, Andre, you proved long ago that being a giant has nothing to do with physical stature. You've been taking giant steps and teaching the art of storytelling for over half a century, and we are among those, those many who have been privileged to be your students. It's time we told the teacher thank you. Throughout the interview, we've mentioned you guys learning from Norton, uh, even though maybe you didn't know it. You were just reading it for fun at the time. You know, hearing that dedication discussion we've had, it's obvious she was a big influence on you and Weber and uh, to everyone sitting in on this. I guess just ask, you ask, know, if you had to put a finger on some of the things you maybe learned from Norton specifically or generally, you know, what would they be? And Eric, you can start, but anyone obviously can feel free to jump in.
5: The thing I am mostly reacted to from Norton when I say mostly, about 98 uh, percent, when I first ran across her as a, you know, like I said, 12, 13, 14, she's just a great storyteller. Uh, I, I don't remember even thinking about her prose one way or the other. Um, I just, they were wonderful stories. Um, they were adventure stories. Mm-hmm. The one thing I noticed, which I was, uh, you got to remember, this is right around the time the Civil Rights Movement was really beginning to hit big. It had actually begun in the 50s, but, you know, it was really rolling across the country now. Where she was one of the, the one of the things that I noticed about science fiction as a very young re- reader that really annoyed the hell out of me was that uh, the world of the future seemed to be entirely white Christians. Uh, I mean, Jewish authors would not have Jews <laughs> in the stories. There were no Jews, which pissed me off because, like, what? Hitler win the war? What happened? And then there were no people of color at all. It, and Norton was the one exception, and to some degree Heinlein. But Norton was the one exception. She would sort of go out of her way to, and I remember many, many, many years later when I talked to her about it, she was still grumpy, and we're talking, what, 50, 60 years later, because the publishers would never, you know, the covers would never reflect that. The character in the cover was going to be white, no matter, you know. And she was still pissed, <laughs> pissed about it half a century later. Uh, so that was the one thing I did notice about her socially, and I liked that a lot. Um, beyond that, though, I just reacted to the stories. Um, part of the reason David and I wrote that uh, dedication was we knew from talking to people—both I, I, of us knew her by then—that she was, you know, feeling kind of depressed because she sort of felt that the, you know, science fiction had passed her by, and she was—she felt like she was half forgotten. I think, which. Certainly not true, but she felt that way. So, um well, from what several people told me who knew her better than I did. And so that's part of the reason David and I wrote it, just to you know, insofar as we could. I mean, you know, we were two both of us popular authors in modern time, just you know, that she had had a big influence on us, which was true. I mean we didn't have to fake it. Um, but that's part of the reason we went out of our way to do it. The thing that was funny, David still hasn't forgiven me for this <laughs> is that did the cover for that book, and the cover's kind of salacious. Um, and David Weber was the one who had to go and present it to her, because I was nowhere near <laughs> so he was the one who showed up to this, <laughs> you know, woman in her 90s uh, and had it in the cover, and she looked at it and said, Oh, my! <laughs> <laughs> Sort of grovel at me about
4: it that I, made, you know, I. Then what could I do? I wasn't near. You know, he was closer than I was. The thing that, looking back on it, really struck me. It really had an effect on me. I mean, is that I'm reading The Last Planet, and they're on this primitive world, and it looks like their civilization is in the process of collapsing, and they're going to have to make. a a new home on this very primitive planet. And then it turns out that that primitive planet is actually Earth. And there's been another collapse. And our far future is, you know, a a Bronze Age, specifically a Bronze Age collapsed sub-civilization. And the notion that we, that U.S. of the 1950s and all these marvelous things and spaceships and all this was part of a system also, and the system doesn't always go up, and keep that in mind throughout life that we are part of a system. We are not God. And, you know, that just—she wasn't preaching— uh, it's just there. You're, you're 14 years old, and you read this book, and it's just there, and you can't get away from it because she isn't pushing. You know, this is just the way it is, and it is the way it is. And I don't remember having read anything by anyone else at, at that age and very rarely later that really makes that point. Um, you know, I, I owed that to her. And I go a lot more, but particularly that.
7: There, there's something you just said that, that indicates where she actually had a, a, a more extensive understanding than we got, say, from Heinlein, because Heinlein was trying to work about with, let us call it, this civilization And what Andre Norton was working in was the fact that there's history, that there is history, and that history... Means something in both in in lots of directions, and she did it with her fantasy stuff, and she also did it with having all these the the interconnected uh, the bodies and all these forerunners and all of that. The assumption that yes, that, as you're you're talking about, the systems will come down, and uh, that was something that we we didn't even get in as much in Heinlein. So uh, that may have been something that's informed us because we're doing. What we write uh, deals with a universe coming after the universe that collapsed. So we mm-hmm. may well have come from that and not understood it.
6: And I think what I learned from Andre Norton was to be bold in when I'm asking one of the primary um, questions of our, of our craft here, which is what would happen if? That there is no limit on, on the answer to that question, what would happen if?
3: Anything else that anyone, anyone wants to add we didn't cover that you feel like we should hit on?
7: Yeah, I'll say Andre Norton gave me personal um, a personal boost. She she wrote me a note when my first short story came out ama- in Amazing, and she wrote me a note and got it to me, and the note was, I'm really glad you're writing. Thanks very much for this story. And she, I know from, from hearing people that she did this for hundreds of writers. Yeah, she did it to me, too. One day
5: I got a letter, this has been 2003, 2000, somewhere around there, and um, this letter arrived. And I looked at the return address at Andre Norton, and I thought, no, oh, it can't be. And I opened it up, and it was basically a fan letter. She'd just read 1632 and really liked it. And just sent me a letter expressing how much she liked it, and it was one of the most disorienting moments in my entire life because <laughs> I'm reading this letter from a woman I've been a fan of hers about fifty years, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm getting this, this what amounts to a fan letter from her, and I'd never occurred to meet her writer. I didn't even know where she lived, and so that was really weird. That's how I actually got to know her because I wrote back to her, and and then. um she, I wind up going to Chattanooga fairly often. So the next time I went down through there, I stopped
4: at her house, and she wound up insisting I spend the night there. A friend of mine was in close correspondence with her. Uh, I, I'd met her, but I, I don't bother other uh, writers. I figure they have things to do. And I, she she asked my friend, "Do you suppose that Mister Drake would?" be willing to write a story for one of my cat volumes. Uh, oh, I'd like some men in it. And while my fans are wonderful people, having a a professional writer might be useful also.
3: Couldn't <laughs> And it <laughs> Could
4: yeah. You know, it was hell yes, I'll write a story. <laughs> I, I mean... God. And and so that's why I have a story in a cat fantastic volume.
6: Well, uh, we share
4: a we share a credit then.
6: Um I have a story uh, in a cat fantastic volume too and I had sent my story in as she had asked if I would be interested in writing cat a cat story for her because we do cats a lot in our universe. And I sent it in and she sent she wrote back and she said, I love this story, it's wonderful, but there's no magic in it. Could you please it's a fantasy anthology. Could you please put a little magic in it for me? Um <laughs> <laughs>
3: Just to add in some magic. Yeah. <laughs> all right, we've been talking about Andre Norton here on the Bane Free Radio Hour. I'm David Afshararad. I want to thank everyone for sitting in on this. Uh, Hank, David, Eric, Sharon, Steve, thanks for talking all things Andre Norton with us today.
6: Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation. Thank
1: you. And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free, or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has defeated one long-standing enemy, the Havenites, and reached a truce with another menace. The ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling, and on the edge of its empire rebellion is brewing. The Solarian Office of Frontier Security is in charge of keeping the peace on the verge, often with brutal tactics and by supporting puppet dictators. Rebels opposed to the oppressive regimes and crushing corporate greed of Soli Interstellar Industry can't hope to match the military might of the O.F.S. without outside aid. They have been receiving help, however, in the form of weapons drops by agents who claim to represent the Star Empire. These agents actually serve the shadowy Mason alignment who wish to see the Salarian League and the Star Empire at war, and a master race of the eugenically bred left to rule in the aftermath. Here's Part 24 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. May
0: 1922, Post-Diaspora Oh, you ain't seen bad yet, but don't you go away now. It'll be along in a minute. Attributed to Simon Allenby of the Cripple Mountain Allenby's Swallow System Chapter 17 Look out! The screamed warning came a lifetime too late, as the first obsolescent but still deadly Solarian-built Scorpion light-armored fighting vehicle rounded the corner of the pastel-colored ceramicry tower it moved down the center of the broad boulevard and two more AFVs followed it. Still others were visible beyond the initial trio, all wearing the presidential seal and crossed thunderbolts of the presidential guard. Any doubt as to the Scorpion's purpose was dispelled quickly, clearly, and not with anything so potentially ambiguous as words. The Scorpion's main weapon, a 35-millimeter grav gun, didn't fire, but its secondary turret-mounted tri-barrel spewed out thousands of rounds of solid five-millimeter darts per minute. They struck like some terrible, solid tornado of destruction, and the front of the crowd of demonstrators disintegrated in a hideous spray of crimson and shredded flesh. Pieces of bodies flew or flopped to the pavement, and shrieks of terror replaced the furious, chanted slogans of moments before. The stink of blood and riven human bodies buried the warm summer scent of flowers from the capital's green belts, and the huge demonstration began to shed a torrent of panicked fugitives. None of those fleeing people were armed. They'd come to express their opposition to President Lombroso's regime, not to engage in pitched warfare with the black-uniformed presidential guard, the most feared of the Mobius system's many security services. The current demonstration had been a long time brewing, and over half of its members belonged to Lombroso's own System Unity and Progress Party. That didn't mean as much as it might have, since the SUPP was the only legal political party in the entire Mobius system, and party membership was a requirement for anybody who ever hoped for anything better than purely menial employment. But it probably said something that so many of System Unity's rank-and-file had been willing to come out in protest of their own founders' policies— Yet, while there'd been no lack of anger in their chance-furious denunciations of Lombroso's tyranny and corruption, very few of those running for their lives had ever imagined a response like this one. Not all the demonstrators were fleeing, however, nor had all of them come unarmed. Less idealistic, or naive, perhaps, than their fellows, those others had anticipated the guard's appearance and come prepared. Or they'd thought they had, anyway." The appearance of AFVs in the heart of the planetary capital when there'd been zero violence from the demonstrators surprised even them. Despite that, weapons began to fire back from here and there in the screaming crowd. Pulsers were few and far between, since, as Lombroso and his OFS-trained presidential guard had explained when confiscating all modern weapons over twenty-t years earlier, the security of Mobius's citizens was the responsibility of their government— There's no room for vigilantism on Mobius citizens. Thank you very much. Now move along. Nothing to see here. Less sophisticated firearms had tended to evade the government ban on personal weapons, however, and if they were less advanced than pulsers, they were no less deadly if they managed to hit their targets. The guard infantry following the Scorpions with their body armor, shield, and high-voltage stun batons found that out the hard way. Their riot gear had served them well in confrontations with outraged college students, fired more by intellectual outrage than organized hatred. It had served well enough breaking heads to discourage the occasional general strike or moving squatters out of housing they happened to own, but which had been condemned under eminent domain for transfer to Lombroso's corporate patrons. And the swaggering, self-proclaimed elite troopers who wore it were backed by heavier infantry and armored vehicles, even stingships. They'd been confident no one could possibly be stupid enough to offer them actual armed resistance with all that firepower on tap to support them. Unfortunately, this time they were wrong, and the riot gear, which had always stopped improvised truncheons or thrown rocks, turned out to be far less effective against bullets. The guards' ranks shuddered as the return fire slammed into it, For a second or two, the troopers simply froze, unable to believe such a thing could possibly happen to them, and over forty were killed or wounded in that handful of moments. For the first time in its history, the guard heard its own members screaming in agony as their bodies were broken and rent, as their blood soaked the pavement. Then, as if it were a single organism, the elite infantry turned and fled in howling panic, The Scorpion crews were just as astonished by the ferocity of the response. Like their infantry compatriots, they'd grown accustomed to being the ones who did the killing and maiming. The notion that someone could offer them organized violence in return had never crossed their minds, and they snarled in fury as their anticipated afternoon's amusement of slaughtering enemies of the state turned into something else. Yet there were still plenty of those enemies of the state out there, and the scorpions still had their weapons and their armor they swept forward on their countergrav tri-barrels raving dozens of demonstrators most of whom hadn't had a thing to do with the fire coming back at the guard were killed for every security trooper who'd gone down bodies or parts of them at least piled in rows as hypervelocity darts tore them apart and scores of other people were trampled many to death in frantic efforts to escape the scorpions wrath Unfortunately for the Guard, however, President Lombroso's security forces hadn't managed to confiscate all of his citizens' modern weapons after all, and the anti-tank launcher on the 30th floor of the O'Sullivan Tower was a very modern weapon indeed. Its kinetic projectile weighed over five kilos, despite its slender dimensions. Accelerated to 30 kps by the man-portable gravitic launcher, it was effectively an energy weapon. The super dense projectile struck with the equivalent energy of well over half a ton of pre space high explosive, concentrated into a penetrator barely one and a half centimeters in diameter, and the lead scorpion erupted in a blue white blaze of burning hydrogen as its fuel tanks ruptured. A second launcher took out another light tank in equally spectacular fashion, and the scorpion crews turned their attention from the diversion of butchering demonstrators to the desperate business of self preservation. Their weapons tracked around, trailing swaths of destruction, hammering the faces of the towers from which the fire was coming. Display windows and businesses exploded. Flames gushed through shattered ceramicrete walls. Fire alarms wailed. Smoke steamed up in dense, choking columns, and another scorpion exploded. The others redoubled their efforts, and main gunfire joined the tornado of tri-barrel darts. The 35-millimeter projectiles were substantially heavier than that, and at least as fast as the anti-tank penetrators and explosions pocked the towers blasting deep into their internal structure. Intolerable! Unacceptable! President Svein Lombroso shouted, pounding on his desk blotter. Did you see that? Do you see that? He stopped pounding long enough to jab one hand at his office windows, which overlooked the columns of inky black smoke rising from the heart of the City of Landing's financial district. The firing had finally stopped an hour ago, but the lower stories of three major towers were roaring infernos, and God only knew how much damage those fires were going to do before they were extinguished. And not just to locally owned property, either. Two satellite offices of Lombroso's major transstellar sponsor were part of the bonfire as well. "'I've been telling you for months something like this was coming,' the president continued. "'For months. I've been warning you about the rumors.' The malcontents my security people have found, but did you believe me? Hell no, you didn't. Mr. President, please calm yourself, Angelica Saita said in her most soothing tones. Her raised hands made stroking motions in midair. I agree this is terrible, sir, but the situation's a long way from out of control. A long way from out of control? Lombroso stared at her incredulously. I lost over a hundred men. A hundred men. That's more guard troopers killed in one afternoon than in the last fifty-two years. Do you think those malcontent anarchists don't realize that? Aren't going to be emboldened by their success? Citus bit her tongue. Officially, she was a State Department employee, the Solarian League's trade attaché on Mobius actually as everyone realized perfectly well the trade mission was where the local office of frontier securities representative one angelica sidus as it happened hung her hat as a mid-level ofs bureaucrat sidus had seen more strong men like lombroso than she cared to recall more than one had gotten his ass in a crack through sheer stupid incompetence too and it was amazing how many of them would have fixated just like lombroso on the losses their security troops had taken as something likely to embolden their local opposition, instead of reflecting on the fury the two or three thousand civilian casualties were going to engender. Because, of course, they are civilians. They don't matter, Zydus thought grimly. Why, oh, why have all these back-planet jackasses heard all about the stick but don't even have a clue about de carrot? Who do they think supports the lifestyles to which they've become accustomed? Their security goons, or the workers they kill off in job lots at moments like this? Not that Lombroso had a corner on the unthinking brutality market, she reflected, glancing at the two Mobians standing attentively behind the president. General Olivia Yardley, CO of the Presidential Guard, was a fairly typical blunt object in Zidus' opinion. A bit more imagination than many a uniformed enforcer, perhaps, but not a lot, and the guard reflected its commander's personality, which explained a great deal about its reactions this morning. Whereas Yardley wore the guard's black uniform, and why did all of these back planet thugs think black was the only possible color for their uniforms? The man standing next to her was in civilian dress with a SUPP lapel pin in the red, gold, and black, which indicated he'd been one of the party's original cadre. He was also a general, however. General Friedemann Matyas, the commander of the Mobius Secret Police, an organization that didn't officially exist, which had always struck Zaitis as a silly thing to pretend. Everyone knew about the MSP. It would have been pretty stupid to rely on the terror of a secret police no one knew existed, after all. But Lombroso and Matias seemed not to understand that secret police was supposed to mean that nobody knew who was in it, not whether or not it existed in the first place. Still, Matias was at least smarter than Lombroso, and his MSP was the System Unity and Progress Party's primary counterintelligence service. Over the five decades of Lombroso's regime, Yardley and Matias had done a fairly impressive job of crushing all effective opposition. They hadn't managed to make him any less hated along the way, though. And while Matya seemed at least marginally aware of the potential downside of slaughtering his own planetary workforce in job lots, Yardley, like Lombroso, was clearly more focused on the casualties her guardsmen had taken. Zaitis considered the refreshing frankness of pointing out that she and Lombroso could always get more security troopers where the last batch had come from, or, if not there... They could import them from off-world prisons or lunatic asylums. In fact, she considered, briefly, of course, reminding the system president who truly propped up his regime. Appearances have to be maintained, she told herself instead. Besides, if I really wanted to jerk his leash, I need to take it up with Guernica, not that she's any price.' The attaché suppressed a headshake of pure disgust at the thought. Georgina Guernica was the Trifecta Corporation's chief executive in Mobius. As such, she ought to have at least some vague notion about conserving her captive labor and customer base. But Trifecta was perfectly comfortable with the slash-and-burn style of exploitation Frontier Security sweetheart deals made practical out here in The Verge. She didn't give a damn what Lombroso or his cronies did as long as they didn't get any uppity ideas about who actually owned their star system. I realize the troublemakers are likely to be even more exercised than they already were, Mr. President, Zida said out loud, once she was sure she had control of her tone and expression again. And I assure you, I forwarded all your security people's warnings to Commissioner Verocchio's office, I'm sure his people have reviewed them carefully. Or not, she thought. After all, you've been vining about the threats to your regime for the next best thing to forty decades. Ever hear the story about the little boy and the wolf? Whatever the hell a wolf is. And how much good is that going to do? Lombroso demanded. Myers is over twelve days from here, even for a dispatch boat. And it's not like they've paid any attention before this. Mr. President, Zydas allowed a cold edge to creep into her voice, you're perfectly well aware of how the Manti provocations in Talbot and Monica have threatened not just this entire region, but especially the Madras sector for the last tea year. Obviously, the Commissioner's attention has been focused on that threat. I realize it may feel as if he's been ignoring your situation or the severity of the threat. I assure you that has not been the case, however. That's easy enough to say, Lombroso muttered. But he also sat back down, Sidus noted with satisfaction. She'd thought reminding him who really ran the verge might recall him to semi-rationality. I understand your concern, sir she said in a milder tone. And I assure you I'll send an immediate report to Commissioner Verrocchio and request an OFS intervention battalion or two. I'm sure Brigadier Yussel will send her very best troops and advisers to assist the guard. It's hardly a situation the gendarmerie hasn't faced before, I'm afraid. Good, Lombroso said. But I hope you've also passed all my reports of Manticoran provocateurs... There's no telling what kind of assistance they're prepared to offer their proxies here in Mobius. For that matter, that's probably where those anti-tank weapons came from this afternoon. I'll be certain to remind Commissioner Verrocchio and Brigadier Jussel of those reports, Mr. President, she assured him. Even if I don't think there's a chance in hell the Mantis are actually trying to provoke trouble here in the armpit of the galaxy, she thought bitingly. Not that I wouldn't be doing my best to kick frontier security in the most sensitive spot I could reach if I were them. But this little tempest started brewing well before that jackass Bing sailed off to New Tuscany, and whatever anyone else thinks, I don't see them deliberately courting a confrontation with the League. Even if they were... Why in Morbius, of all places? I'm sure they could find a better, more effective spot to make trouble. I'll admit we're a little behind the news out here, but still. Good, Lombroso repeated. Good.
1: That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 24, read by Alison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com. Thanks to Laura Haywood Corey, David F. Sherarad, Christopher Chifani, and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a planet full of psychic mutants broadcasting Alpha Wave Pans of thanks to Hank Davis, David Drake, Eric Flint, Sharon Lee, and Steve Miller. Please join us next time at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars.